Well, join me now in Matthew chapter 21. And Easter is coming up. In fact, it's next Sunday. And like Christmas, many traditions have arisen around Easter where we could lose our sight of what really matters with it. With Easter, we might become distracted by colorful eggs and baskets and bonnets and things like that. But today I want to take us back to dusty streets. I want to take you back to cheering crowds and even jeering crowds. We're going to go back together to the final week before the cross. Some call this Holy Week. Others call it Passion Week. But whatever you call it, it was the most significant week in all of human history. Somebody might counter, well, wait a minute. How about that creation week? Wasn't that significant? Oh, it was. And if it were not for the creation week, we'd be nothing. But if it were not for Passion Week, we'd also be nothing. Nothing but condemned. And so this Passion Week is framed by two Sundays. Palm Sunday that we're remembering now. And then Easter Sunday. And so we have on Palm Sunday, Jesus with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But the very next Sunday, we'll see his triumphal exit from the tomb. But in between much suffering. A week of agony between these two Sundays. The agony of opposition and rejection, betrayal and denial and ridicule and beatings. And then the cruelest death imaginable, crucifixion. So next week we'll celebrate together once again the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. But this week looking at some of those highlights of that week leading up to the cross Now, the goal is this, that you and I would appreciate anew what Jesus was willing to endure for us. But at the same time, I want us to consider how we should respond to Jesus who offered so much to us. In fact, you could be here today and your response needs to be this. I need to now at last turn from sin and put my faith in Jesus. That may be you watching from home. I need to turn from my sin and put my faith in Jesus. Let's talk about how we should respond to Jesus. And let's begin at that triumphal entry, Matthew 21, picking up in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the King of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. We look at this moment of Jesus coming into such excitement, and we see this as a highlight moment. And we like this. This is Jesus getting the praise and the worship that he's due. As he's riding into Jerusalem, people are recognizing appropriately that this is the king. This is the long-promised 
Messiah. Now we're going to note several things about this triumphal entry here. First of all, this entry fulfilled prophecy. Matthew even noted it. This fulfills what was spoken through the prophet. Back in verse 4 here. This is the prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the the foal of a beast of burden. And so let's note that, fulfilling prophecy, but also note the humility here. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, not, not riding on a Roman horse. He comes in on a donkey. As the prophet said, he's coming in quite humbly. In fact, if you think about it, everything about Jesus's life and ministry exuded humility. Let's go back to his birth. Here is God himself willing to become one of us. Even being born to a common woman, even his birthplace, a place where there were animals. And his life was humble. Jesus did not live in a palace. He did not ride around in a chariot. He didn't have servants taking care of his every need throughout his life. His life was humble. But what about his ministry? His ministry was humble. He was loving people and seeking the down and out. And he resisted the proud and the corrupt. And he ministered to the hurting and the sick and the rejected. But the ultimate expression of his humility was the cross. Where God who took on human flesh would willingly give his life for sinners like us. So marvel with me. At this humility of Jesus. But don't mistake his humility as somehow an acknowledgement that he was not God. Because I want you to notice this also from the triumphal entry. That Jesus accepted the adoration and the worship that was expressed to him on that day. Look at verse 9 again. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So we have to ask, what does Hosanna mean? And that was an Aramaic term that literally meant help, I pray, or save, I pray. But over time, that had come to mean by this time simply an expression of praise. Like when somebody would say hallelujah or praise the Lord. It had that type of meaning. So this could be rendered praise to you, son of David. And what does the designation son of David refer to? Well, that is a messianic claim. That is a statement that Jesus, you are the son of David. You are the Messiah. Luke records some other things that were expressed to Jesus that day. Luke 19, 38 says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Praise and worship coming to Jesus and he accepted it. Now, the Pharisees, they didn't like it. Luke records this in Luke 19, 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I love Jesus's response. Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He's coming humbly. Oh, but he's God and he's receiving worship. So the crowd was right. Jesus was not rebuking them for this. He is the king. He is the savior. And yet this Passion Week does not end there on that high note of praise and worship toward Jesus. Because we know in a few short days, there'll be another crowd shouting some things. Maybe even some of these from this crowd will be in this other crowd that will be shouting later in the week, crucify, crucify. And Jesus knew all that. He rides into Jerusalem knowing that he is coming to give his life. And I love this. He didn't shrink back from it. He told his disciples just days earlier, I'm going to Jerusalem. 
I'll be put to death and I'll rise on the third day. And so here he comes to the praise that he knows is temporary, to the suffering that lies ahead of him. And there he comes, not deterred, not shrinking back. He understood. He took on flesh and blood in the womb of Mary that he might give his flesh and blood on the cross on the Friday coming up. So marvel with me at Jesus. God in the flesh, humbly living and humbly giving his life for us. Now, remember this with me as we consider his humility and coming in this way, he's coming back in a very different way. He's coming in on this, on this day on a donkey, but he's coming back in great glory. In fact, he, he taught about it on the Tuesday of Passion Week in that Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Listen to what Jesus said about his coming again. This is Matthew 24, verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Coming in on this Palm Sunday on a donkey. But coming again, he says, on the clouds. In fact, Revelation 19 tells us he will be on a horse on that day. He'll be on a white horse because he's coming then, not humbly, but he's coming to conquer and to rule when he comes again. But not yet. This is the week where he's going to give his life. This is where he's going to die on a cross for us. And so right here, let me ask you, what is your response to Jesus? The right response is what we see in this crowd on this day. They didn't know the full story. They probably misunderstood what type of Messiah he was going to be. But you and I know the full story. We know the cross is coming. We know the empty tomb's coming. And our right response, though, should be saying, yes, he is the king. He is the savior. And I give my allegiance to him. So this week, I want to encourage you maybe to read Matthew 21, where we are now, through Matthew 28. As you just think about what Jesus was willing to do for you, leading up to the empty tomb, why not Take this walk with Jesus to the cross this week, Matthew 21 through 28. But right now, I want to take us all together to Thursday of Passion Week. So we've been talking about Sunday, this great entry, lots of things happening that week. But let's jump to Thursday. And so much was happening there. And let's go with Jesus to the upper room that Thursday evening. This is the occasion where Jesus washed his disciples' feet. In that upper room, this is where Jesus ate the last supper with them. And it was there in that place on that Thursday evening that he taught us some of the most precious truths in all the Bible. John records these teachings for us in John 14 through 17, which begins this way. Let not your heart be troubled. Remember that great truth? And Jesus telling them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Great truths he taught them there on that Thursday in the upper room. Or how about John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That was on Thursday night Jesus taught that before his death. Or how about John 15? I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus taught that just a couple of days before his death. Or how about this one? When he tells us in John 15 also, hey, the world hates me and they're going to hate you as well. Aren't you glad Jesus taught that? We need to know that even in our day all these years later. Or in, in John 16, Jesus taught on that Thursday night about the promise of the Holy Spirit. Or John 17, the great high priestly prayer where Jesus prayed for us. And so Thursday night was full and it's not even over there. From the upper room, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and you know what happened there. Jesus was there praying and that's where he was betrayed. 
in the garden, as we walk with Jesus toward the cross, we see that there was a lot of emotion there. There was a lot of action and sadly, a lot of rejection. And so as you and I think about how do I respond to Jesus, we're going to see a lot of what not to do here. But hear the word of God here. After Jesus had that agonizing hour of prayer, while his disciples slept, we read what happened next. Matthew 26, verse 47. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now, what a contrast from Sunday where he came in publicly in broad daylight to shouts of praise. But here on this Thursday evening, they come by night cowardly to arrest Jesus. But we have to look at Judas here. How did Judas respond to Jesus? Here's Judas, one of the 12 in the inner circle of Jesus with a front row seat to all the great miracles of Jesus, a front row seat to the love of Jesus and the great teachings of Jesus. Think about it. just a few days before Judas saw Lazarus raised to life. Judas could be able to recall when Jesus fed the 5,000, the other occasion when he fed the 4,000. When Jesus cast out demons, Judas saw all that, but here he is betraying Jesus on the Thursday night. What do we take away from that? We'll never underestimate the potential for darkness in the human heart. As we consider Judas, he demonstrates for us that you can have a head knowledge of Jesus, but no heart at all for Jesus. Judas demonstrates that you can be around Jesus and not know Jesus at all. In fact, to, to you and me in this room here or watching elsewhere, you can be around Christians, but that does not make you one at all. In fact, let me just ask a very direct question. Do you see any of Judas in you today? Maybe there was a time in your life where you used to worship, you used to be more involved in the things of God, but not, not so much now. And you know deep in your heart that you've been faking you're just going through the motions. Maybe if you're young, you're doing it for the sake of your parents. My heart's not in this. Has it been in this for some time? I'm just going through the motions. Maybe the people who know you best know that you're not living at all for Jesus. When you're around your true friends, the real you comes out and, and you might even proudly say, I've gone rogue. I'm just doing my thing. Listen, you're being a Judas. And it's not at all good to be a faker, to be a Judas. And we'll see that very clearly. But maybe God brought you here today. That's you being dishonest, being a faker, no heart for God, rebelling against him proudly when you're not here. But God brought you here out of mercy that you could turn from that, that you could put your faith in Jesus to receive a fresh start, to receive cleansing, to truly be born again and give your heart to Jesus. I pray that you'll respond to the grace of the Lord today in that. So Judas's response, that cannot be our response to betray Christ. But then we look at these soldiers and they have their encounter with Jesus. Matthew simply tells us that there's a crowd there to arrest Jesus. John tells us that there were Roman soldiers, a cohort of them in the crowd. John 18, three, Judas then having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. A Roman cohort would be around 600 soldiers. So in that crowd, 
there would be a lot of weapons. And this is what makes Peter's reaction next quite noteworthy. Peter drew a sword. Listen to how the scripture describes it in Matthew 26, 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Luke tells us, by the way, that Jesus healed the ear. Verse 52, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So we look at Peter and we think, kind of impressed with that, right? Get him, Peter. I mean, there's a cohort there, Roman soldiers, and he takes his weapon and strikes. I don't know what Peter was thinking. Probably wasn't thinking at all. But maybe he was thinking, I'll get this thing started. And Jesus, I've seen what you can do. And this will be over in a second. But listen, Jesus didn't like it. Though it might appeal to our flesh to see him do that. Jesus did not like it at all. Peter was wrong. Jesus rebuked him. I don't need you to defend me. That's what he's saying. Peter, don't you know that I could call really unlimited power here and take care of this myself? I don't need your little sword. Put that away. He mentions here 12 legions of angels. If we took that number just at that, it'd be at least 72,000. But he said, I could bring more than 12 legions. He's got everything at his disposal, disposal, overwhelming power he could bring to bear. He doesn't need our violence to advance his cause. But that wasn't Peter's only reaction that night. He, he failed on that one. But just in a few moments, he's going to be denying Jesus. Look what we see here in Matthew 26, 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. In just a few more moments after fleeing, he's going to deny to others that he never, ever knew Jesus. So he had fight on his mind, then flight, and then complete failure. So we're just talking about how should we respond to Jesus we can't respond like Peter on that night. Our move is not violence in the name of Jesus. Sometimes we get angry and we don't like what's happening. We think, I just want to strike back in some way. And that's never going to be the move. We just went through the Sermon on the Mount. We know that's not the move that would honor Christ. And Peter was wrong on that night. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We fight the good fight, true. We fight spiritually with superior weapons. And that's how we will fight in the name of the Lord and neither are we to cave in. So we're not going to be violent, but neither are we those who cave in to the pressure and deny Christ. Our move is faith and faithful devotion to Christ, no matter the cost. And of course, we know Peter regretted that. Aren't we glad that's not the end of the story? Not the end of the story for you and me too. When we fail, oh, we see the grace of God. In fact, after Easter, we're going to pick up first and second Peter and walk through those and see how God used this man who failed so miserably at home this night, used him greatly in the kingdom of God. So we can't be like Judas betraying Jesus. We can't be like Peter trying to be violent for him or then denying him. But let's keep going here on this walk with Jesus to the cross. And let's go into those wee hours of Friday morning as this trial takes place or multiple phases of this crooked trial. Here we see Jesus before Annas and then Caiaphas, the high priest. Listen to this exchange. This is Matthew 26, verse 62 and following. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. 
But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I love that. Jesus silent, not begging for his life. He came to give his life. But he lets him know, you haven't seen anything yet. I'm coming back in a very different way. I'm coming back on the clouds. But what comes next is bad. Verse 65 of Matthew 26. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Well, this trial then moves from the high priest to the Roman authorities and the abuse of Jesus continues. John talks about it in John 19 verses one through three. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, hail king of the Jews and to give him slaps in the face. Mark talks about it in Mark 15, 16. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim, Hail, King of the Jews! And they kept beating his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling and bowing down before him. Consider with me here Jesus enduring such rejection. For us, consider the beatings that Jesus endured for us. Consider the mocking that he endured for us. So we pity those blind souls who hated Jesus so. And we pity people in our day who have that same type of hatred for Christ. And for those who follow Christ, you and I must see that we're not among them. But look to Jesus, so full of power had all power to obliterate everybody abusing him on that day, but chose not to do so, restrained himself because the plan was to come to endure that for us and to go to a cross and pour it all out for us. Jesus endured rejection for us. Let me ask you this. Can you handle rejection for him? In this culture, can you handle rejection for him? Look, Jesus, he loved me to that extreme degree. Whatever comes my way for identifying myself, With Jesus, I can take that through the Holy Spirit. I can take that for him. So would you believe in Jesus? Would you follow Jesus? And even in a world of hatred and rejection of Jesus, would you say, but I'll be among those, even if it's a few that will follow Jesus faithfully. But we continue this trial and we consider with Pilate here, in all this brutality, Pilate tried to take a different path. He rejected Jesus in a more mild way, but rejected him Nonetheless, listen to this. This is John writing, John 19, verse 4. Pilate came out and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate might have thought, look, I'm, I'm not as bad as they are. They're screaming to kill him. I don't find anything wrong with him, but here you do it. You do what you want to do. It's sad for Pilate because the savior of the world was standing right in front of him and he doesn't recognize it. 
no faith, no commitment, not even willing to stand for him. And there are many in our day who would also take the approach of Pilate. I'll say some nice things about him. I won't trust him. I won't follow him. Certainly not if it costs me something, but I'll say nice things about him. I can say this. I admire him. He's a good teacher. Lots of good moral lessons that he gave. Or somebody might take this approach. Well, I don't know about following him and all that, but I'm certainly not against him. Don't count me among those who are against him. But listen, that doesn't go far enough at all. That's not a saving faith. Listen, Jesus claimed far more than that. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. Jesus claimed to be the only way to the Father. Jesus claimed to be the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so he is to be believed. Jesus is to be embraced and trusted and followed. That's, that's our response to him. But we know how this went. Jesus scourged. We've read about the crown of thorns. And then the nails placed in his hands and feet on that Friday. And he's hung on a cross. But here's where I want you to see one more reaction, one more response to Jesus. And oh, may it be your response to Jesus as we look at the thief on the cross. Luke records it this way in Luke 23, 39 and following. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. There's your response to Jesus. And don't you love it? In the most unlikely place on a cross, one of the criminals being crucified alongside Jesus comes to faith in Jesus. This is before resurrection. So while he's dying on the cross, watching Jesus die on the cross, while the other thief is abusing and hurling insults at Christ, he comes to faith in Jesus. And notice what he did. In that moment, that guilty thief acknowledged his guilt. That was, that was his move. It wasn't him hanging on a cross for his crime saying, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good. You ought to no, know. We're, we're guilty here alongside Jesus. He's innocent. I'm guilty. So he acknowledged his guilt. Not only that, he believed in the dying Savior. He believed that Jesus could save him. Did you notice what he asked? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Oh, what faith there on the cross. And don't you love Jesus' response? His response was not, hey, you've lived a bad life. I have no use for you. Jesus went to a cross for people like the thief on the cross and people like us. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus offering salvation. It's what he came to do. So what is your response to Jesus? Jesus died on that cross for that thief's sins, but also for your many sins. Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions. Romans 5, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And we know the rest of the story. Jesus was raised on the third day. So today, would you respond to Jesus like the thief? Would you acknowledge your sin and repent of them? Which means I, I lay them down and I walk away from those that I might trust in Jesus. Would you run to him for forgiveness? Would you run to Jesus for cleansing? 
Would you run to Jesus for eternal life? He's the one who can give this to you. Let me give you an opportunity to pray to him right now.